The reading this morning is taken from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, beginning at chapter 10, verses 14, and it can be found on page 1149. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I have a right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the Church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Dude, I am. Uh, Just quickly before we begin, a couple of quick things. Firstly, a friendly reminder, if I may say, we're not meant to park on the painted areas of the village car park, so uh, for our regulars especially... Uh, if you can keep that in mind from next week onward, that would be super duper. Uh, secondly, we need our Bibles open, page 1149, uh, because we've got some important work to do in the Scriptures today. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get down to work. Uh, Lord God, we do thank you for your goodness to us in sending the rain, which nourishes the earth, and in giving us your word, which nourishes our soul. Uh, so give us the humility to receive it, and then the will to obey it, Uh, and to let it really follow through into our lives, that our lives might increasingly reflect that of the Lord Jesus. We pray. Amen. 
Okay, here's a question to begin with. What do you think is the basic position of the Christian faith to the world? Should we as Christians be positive towards the world? Should we be negative towards society? I think that's sort of what we're known for. Should we be kind of removed from culture? Should we withdraw ourselves? It's a really important question. What is our essential position or posture towards the world, society, culture, kind of the space out there? What do you think? By the way, that's a rhetorical question, which I only say because this morning at 8 o'clock someone yelled out an answer. A couple of weeks ago, I told you about my grandfather. He was a, a beautiful Christian man. I loved him a lot. And uh, remember, we were walking past uh, a heaving pub on a sweaty Brisbane afternoon, and he told me that that yeasty, hoppy smell of the beer was the smell of naughty man's drink. You remember that? Well, I remember another time I was in the front seat of his impeccably maintained 22-year-old Mazda. I was about 12, and I just discovered rock and roll, uh, and it went straight into my soul and has lived there ever since in perfect 4-4 time. And uh, this song came on the radio that I liked. And so I went to turn it up. And he looked across, I remember him looking across at me with his face full of love, but his voice full of disappointment. And he said to me, you don't like that, do you? He loved me. He wanted the best for me. He just didn't think that rock and roll was the best for me. And I guess that sort of represented the tradition, the Christian tradition that he was brought up in. Christians don't dance, um, don't listen to rock music, don't go shopping on Sundays, that sort of thing. When I was involved uh, with young people, I remember reading a quote about youth ministry. And it says, we, um, it said that we, we help young people to trust in Christ and then we tell them to take a gun to their culture, to criticize it and attack it. Is that what you think our position should be? Other Christians are um, really worried about the influence of society, that they kind of create a Christian version of everything, don't they? Kind of withdrawn from the world at large. So there's Christian schools and there's Christian rock bands and there's even Christian comedians. (laughs) Like as if they'd be funny. And uh, (laughs) so that home and school and church and all of life are these very kind of safe places kind of like a churchy bomb shelter, protected from the outside world. But you know, I'm not sure that the Bible or the New Testament or the Apostle Paul have a basic posture towards the world that is either negative or withdrawn. Certainly Jesus didn't. Uh, You'll remember that he ate with regular folks. Uh, He got invited to parties. He befriended prostitutes. I'm not saying that he condoned their sin or that he joined them in their iniquity, but he wasn't withdrawn from the world, and he was far more negative about hypocritical religious leaders, wasn't he, than with ordinary folks in the ordinary world. And today we're going to see that the Apostle Paul similarly encourages us as Christians to have a generous posture towards our world and our society and our culture and our unbelieving friends and acquaintances, albeit with some asterisks, with some strong qualifications. We're going to see today that there is great freedom, a great deal of freedom for Christians to get on with just living a life free from endless regulation and demarcation, but that we need to exercise that freedom for the sake of others, not for ourselves. Now, uh, if you've not been with us for the last two weeks, we saw two weeks ago that the Corinthians had this big question. It's remote to us, front and centre for them, which is, what do we do with food sacrificed to idols? Because a Gentile... 
that's a, a non-Jewish, a regular kind of Corinthian person, would have spent their whole life eating at the temple of idols, enjoying meat that was sacrificed in those temples. That was just part of the social fabric of Corinthian life. There were idols at these temples. The food you'd eat had been sacrificed to these idols in a ceremony. And then you shared it around at a meal afterwards in what was very much like a primitive restaurant. And their question was, now that we've become Christians, do we keep up that practice or do we necessarily have to withdraw ourselves from that practice? And as always, there were different views on this, right? So there was a bunch of the Corinthians, the so-called strong ones. They thought that the little idol thing was just a piece of stone or wood, nothing at all in the world. So no problem eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. There was another group, uh, the Corinthian Christians, the so-called weak ones, and they did have a problem with it. They decided that it was, it was wrong to eat the meat. They thought it represented a previous sinful way of life. Maybe they were weak because they just thought, if I start, I'm going to go right back to idol worship. And uh, back in chapter 8, the Apostle Paul said, in the Christian life, you don't work out what you do based on just knowledge, on what you think you know. You work it out based on what's in the best interest of others. Knowledge alone puffs up, but love builds up you might actually restrict in other words your own personal freedom for the sake of others you might limit your own entitlements if that is loving for others and then last week Bruce showed us how the apostle Paul actually did that in his own life he had the rights or the entitlements to be paid for preaching the gospel but he didn't insist on being paid by the Corinthians Uh, he set aside that kind of entitlement that right Uh, just in that situation, so that the gospel would go into the very depths of their souls. Now today, we're going to see that our freedom in the gospel is real, just as the Apostle Paul's freedom was real. But there are a couple of situations to which our freedom does not extend. In other words, our freedom has its limits. Okay, so that's a slightly longer introduction, which means slightly shorter points. And the first thing we need to see today is that we have freedom. We really do, but not when it represents sin and idolatry. There is a great freedom in the Christian life to be involved in the world and culture and all that, but not if it represents idolatry and sin. And that really, it's about as clear as you can kind of hear it in verse 14. So have a look at that in the Bibles in front of you. Verse 14. Therefore, dear friends, flee from idolatry. So at the start of chapter 10, you've got this kind of longish section where he reminds the Corinthian Christians of the history of Israel, the Old Testament people of God. They experienced the extraordinary salvation of God out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, towards the Promised Land. But because of their sin, and particularly their tendency to worship idols, verse 5 tells us that, Despite their first-hand experience of God's saving power, nevertheless, he was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered over the desert. That's sobering, don't you think? As are the four examples in their history where he mentions how they sinned and particularly how they worshipped idols and were killed as a result. And he says in verse 6 and verse 11, and I would like you to look at your Bibles at those verses, verse 6 and verse 11, that those guys, the thousands who saw God's saving power and yet died, are examples. And they're warnings to us, so we don't set our hearts on evil. And then in verse 12, he even says, if we think we're standing firm, 
If we think we've got it together, we ought to be careful that we don't fall. And all that discussion is really really a lead up. Uh, Verse 14, it says, to flee from idolatry. Now we uh, struggle, I think, to um, work out what all the fuss is about idols in the New Testament. And uh, maybe that's because when we think of idols, we think of these people. Why are they doing karate? I don't understand. Um, Or even this guy. He's also doing karate. Or maybe he's saying, don't touch the hair. (laughs) Sorry, guy. Or uh, maybe we look at little statues like this, and uh, we're just as likely to think, you know what, that would make an excellent pen holder or paperweight. Of course, in our modern scientific age, we uh, know exactly what the Corinthian Christians knew 2,000 years ago, that an idol is nothing at all in the world. But of course, then, in that culture and in that time, idols weren't just paperweights. They represented local gods and local deities. And in fact, it's not strictly even true to say that they're nothing at all. I mean, sure, a block of stone is just a block of stone. But if that block of stone becomes kind of the focus of your worship, if you use that block of stone to worship a local god or a deity, then spiritual forces are at work. I mean, they're demonic powers, no less. So for the Corinthian Christians, if you guys are uh, um, joining in a feast that's connected to the worship of an idol and you're, you're really a part of it, then unwittingly, perhaps, the Apostle Paul says, you're actually joining in with demons. So flee idolatry. It's driven by demons and demonic forces. Well, let's work through that argument beginning with verse 16. Let's have a think about it. These are mental, spiritual chin-ups, people. Let's see if we can do it. When, as Christians, says verse 16, we take the cup of thanksgiving. Okay, that's the cup at the end of the Passover ceremony, which Jesus reimagines into the Lord's Supper. When we take that cup or we take the bread, we are participating or sharing. Literally, the word there is fellowshipping with the body and blood of Christ. Okay, we are joining with Jesus himself. It's verse 16. Now the Apostle Paul says, think about the Old Testament people of Israel. When they sinned, they brought a sacrifice to the altar in Jerusalem. Did they not participate, share in, literally fellowship with the forgiveness that was offered there? Of course they did. So if that's true for Christians at the Lord's Supper, it's true for the Old Testament people of Israel when they offered sacrifices for their sin. Isn't that also true of meat offered by kind of pagans? It's just kind of a code word for unbelievers to their idols in temples? Have a look at what Paul says in verses 19 and 20. Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. Is there anything spiritually dark with a slab of meat? Of course not. Is there anything kind of spiritually dark in a block of stone? Of course not. But when the meat and the idol are used in the worship of of a God that is not a safe activity. It's not a neutral practice. It's not a part of culture that the Corinthians were free to be involved in. It's a practice driven by demons. And the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, you just can't have a seat at the table of demons 
and a seat at the table of the Lord. You just can't. Freedom has its limits. And even with a very positive posture towards our world that doesn't allow us as Christians to be involved in idolatry in particular or even in sin more generally. Other gods, other religions, other philosophies are not neutral territory for Christians. They are driven by demons. And if you don't like that, you need to remember Jesus said the exact same thing to the Pharisees in John chapter 8. We're not all basically on the same team, planet Earth. When it comes to this stuff, according to the scriptures that God has given us. And it's just not the case that as long as people are somehow vaguely spiritual, that they're probably all right with God. Any practice that involves the worship of any God or deity or being or thing other than the one true living God who came to earth as a man in the person of Jesus, who lives with us by his Holy Spirit, and who is testified to clearly, specifically, and unambiguously in Scripture, is something God does not tolerate, and it's something as Christians we must say no to. I wonder how you go with this, Um, and I suspect I'm not the only one who gets put under gentle pressure to concede that Christianity is pretty much the same as Islam and Buddhism and, and just all the world religions. You ever been pressured to to say that happened to me twice last week and of course it's true man there are some similarities across the world religions and the great philosophies i mean most of them will encourage us not to not to lie most of them will encourage us to you know be faithful to our spouses most of them will encourage us not to steal and not to uh, respond or resist violence with retaliation but on the essential question of who or what do we worship, the differences are compelling and they're clear. And so Christians must resist the worship of any other gods. It constitutes fellowship with demons and it provokes the just jealousy of God, even if our overall attitude towards the world is positive. So that's the first thing. Secondly, and uh, much more quickly, you'll be relieved, We have freedom generally, great freedom generally. But secondly, not when it acts against someone's conscience. We've just seen that we've got freedom to get into life and culture and so on, but not if it represents idolatry and sin. Likewise, we've got great freedom to get into life and culture and so on, but not if it acts against someone's conscience. So the Christians back then, they weren't free to join in meals celebrating idols at pagan temples. That represented fellowship with demons, but... They thought, what do we do with the meat that we buy at the market? Because just about all of the meat at the market would have been sacrificed to something, to some idol, to some god, somewhere along the line. But have a look in verse 25, right? Paul's response is refreshingly freeing. He says, look, you could get stressed out about it, trying to work out which exact deity it had been sacrificed to, but just eat it without raising questions of conscience. If you're not using it as part of idol worship, just just eat it. You've got great freedom to take a big, hearty, chunky bite out of it without creating a fuss. Isn't it true that it all comes from God? Verse 26, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Any of you guys with kids or... Um, 
any of you have ever been a kid. Uh, you know, we've all got stories to tell about um, being fussy with food, don't we? It's what kids are known for. Everyone's got a story about hiding their peas underneath their cutlery or, um, you know, feeding their broccoli to the dog, chucking the carrots behind the pot plant, whatever it is. So kids, are they're really fussy with their food, aren't they? You know, adults uh, can be really fussy as well. We've got a friend called Lucy. She's an adventurous type, and uh, she was backpacking around Mexico. And one day she ordered a beef enchilada in a restaurant. Well, she ate it, and she thought, that tastes a bit odd. And so she asked the, uh, the waiter, she said, um, what is this? And he said, beef, see, beef. Well, she took another bite, and uh, she thought, that is not beef. So she asked him again, is this beef? And he goes, see, beef, see. And then she took another bite, and she got wise, and she asked the question, what kind of beef is this? <laughs> it's that kind of beef, otherwise known as lizard. <laughs> so kids aren't the only ones who are going to be fussy about their food. But if you had Corinthian Christians and they were fussy about kind of the, the spiritual contamination of their food, had it been sacrificed to something somewhere along the line, the Apostle Paul says, relax, man, it's good. You're free to eat without raising questions of conscience. You get invited to an unbeliever's place Eat whatever is put before you in verse 27. There's no need to be fussy about that either. Just enjoy it. You know, get into it. Enjoy it freely. In fact, he says the only time not to eat it is if somebody else at the table makes a big deal about the fact that it may have been sacrificed somewhere. Someone else turns it into a matter of conscience. And maybe the Apostle Paul has in mind another unbelieving guest who's at the table, in which case the Christian doesn't eat just so that the the unbelieving guests can appreciate that the Christians don't get involved in idolatry and the Christians don't think that basically all religious stuff is the same. Although it's unlikely that Paul would have in mind an unbelieving Corinthian because they would have no kind of conscience issues with idol meat. They got into it all the time. Uh, so he's probably thinking of an, another Christian. And if another Christian there has got issues with that meat because in their own mind they consider it sinful, then he just says, don't eat it. You know, don't. Um, Verse 28, don't eat for their sake. Verse 29, their, their conscience, you know. Don't eat it for the sake of their conscience, like we talked about two weeks ago. I mean, it's not that you think it's sinful, but you're just trying to do the right thing by the other guy. And you could probably paraphrase verses 29 and 30 as follows. I don't make up my mind on these things on the basis of what other people think, but I am prepared to do what others believe to be right if that's going to build them up rather than destroy them. It's a great freedom, but you might choose to limit it for yourself. Now, I think this is good, right? Because um, even if your favorite Thai restaurant has got uh, food out the front that's offered to gods, as long as you're not taking part in the idol worship, then you are free to get into that food. Isn't that good? That is good. And now let's say you go to a friend's place or um, you go to the butcher or you go to the markets and the meat there could be halal. That is, it's prepared according to kind of Islamic practices. It's still good to eat. It all comes from God anyway. We've got great freedom as Christians. But we do sometimes limit our freedom where it acts against another's conscience. So that's the second thing. 
Thirdly, and very quickly, the Apostle Paul summarizes this, the whole three chapters in four little verses at the end. And he basically says, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Do everything for the glory of God. Whatever you do. And I know that that sounds like a slogan on one of those kind of exercise t-shirts. Just do it, whatever you do. Um, I've got to say, I prefer the more um, sarcastic t-shirts, you know, where it says, just do it. I prefer the one that says, we said it wouldn't work. Uh, Or even this one, can't someone else just do it? But I do want you to notice how positively this whole section ends. Uh, Have a look. Verse 31. Whatever you do, eating, drinking, whatever, do it for God's glory. Not for the glory of an idol and not for my own personal freedom and comfort. Or in verse 33, try to please everyone in every way. Not pleasing myself and certainly not pushing my rights. Still in verse 33, not seeking my own good, but the good of others that they might be saved. And chapter 11, verse 1, follow my example, says Paul, as I follow the example of Christ. See, that's how you work out how to live with freedom and its limits. You do everything for God's glory. You try to please everyone in every way rather than yourself. You seek the benefit of others that they may be saved. And you follow the example of Paul as he follows the example of Christ. Did you notice there's only one negative? There's only one restriction in that whole little paragraph. And it's in verse 32. And it says, don't, don't cause anyone from any group, Jews, Greeks, Christians don't cause them to stumble in their faith or on their way towards faith. And that's it. That's it. So what does this uh, mean for us, 21st century people? Well, firstly, I hope it's reminded us or maybe persuaded us of our freedom as Christians to get into life and culture And I think to adopt a basically open posture towards the world and towards society, rather than being ever critical, negative, or withdrawn from the world, every now and again just kind of lobbing a hand grenade over the parapet. I think that was the Apostle Paul's basic posture. He was positive. The very fact that he mentions Jews, uh, Greeks or Gentiles, and Christians means that he's rubbing shoulders with all three groups Believers and unbelievers from various kind of backgrounds. You know, in chapter 9, he says, I try to become all things to all people that I might save some. And I wonder why as Christians we decide to be no thing or nothing to no one. And so we save none. So the Apostle Paul, man, he's, uh, he's the opposite. He's in the mix. And he's not about the business of creating more regulations And it's important to note that uh, one of the main reasons he's doing that is in order that he might save some, winning them to Christ. So this is good, man. It means you want to eat interesting food, you can eat interesting food, seeing it as a good gift from God, even if you don't know the channels that it's passed through before it lands on your plate. And you can listen to good music, even if it's not made by Christian musicians. And you can learn from other people even if they're not themselves believers. And we should have friends who aren't believers. There's great freedom and a generally positive and open position towards the world. It's good. 
But of course, that general posture of positivity doesn't mean you never critique culture, does it? And there are just some things as Christians we must withdraw from. I mean, having a look at chapter 10, you'd have to say that specifically means idolatry and the worship of other gods. Now, of course, us as modern Christians or modern people, we wouldn't be so stupid to worship things made of stone, would we? Or things made of wood? Or things made of metal? Ah. 1968 Ford Mustang fastback with a big block engine. <laughs> Giddy up. Don't you reckon that our property and leisure and possessions are some of the great idols of our day? Aren't they um, some of the very things that even we might put our trust in, property? Or the things that give us the greatest joy, our leisure? Or things that give us the most pleasure, our possessions? Or even the things we devote our, our greatest energies to, our work? So I do think we, we need to be careful that we're, we're not unsuspecting worshippers of our homes or our leisure pursuits or our possessions. Can I affectionately say we need to test ourselves on this? We need to check our own hearts. Remember what Paul said in verse 12. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And, uh, you know, just thinking about leisure, some of our leisure pursuits could actually drift, I think unwittingly, into the worship of other deities, couldn't they? I mean, you think of some of the the martial arts, um, some yoga, stuff like that. I mean, the truth is there's yoga and there's martial arts that's really physical exercise. Of course, there's no problem with that. And of course, there, at the other end, there's yoga and there's martial arts that are very much spiritually oriented and not towards Jesus, which as Christians, we just need to steer clear from. And I guess there's lots of, that's somewhere in the middle. And uh, it'd be worth just thinking through carefully uh, in our own minds and in our own hearts and in conversations with one another, how that works. Hi there, sweetheart. Now, there are actually other things as Christians we might not partake of, even though we might be generally free to. Are you free to go dancing? Yes, you are. But that doesn't mean being in a nightclub for hours is going to be helpful either for yourself or for others. Am I free to listen to rock and roll? Yes, I am. But you know what? I've stopped listening to some of it because I just found myself thinking and speaking way more aggressively just because I listened to that particular music. But in this section, there is just a refreshing openness towards our involvement in the world. There's a great restatement of the freedom we have as Christians, as well as an equally robust reminder that we limit our own freedom. If it leads us to idolatry in particular, or into sin more generally, or causes anyone to stumble, or in any way detracts from others coming to faith. And as we finish... I think it's worth saying that that open stance towards the world, I believe, is a crystalline reflection of God's own stance towards the world. Remember, for God so loved the world, didn't he? That he sent his son into the world. Jesus, God the Son, entered physical time and space. It's remarkable. That those who believe in him might not perish, but have life. God loves, God enters, and God saves. 
should be no surprise to us that he gives us the freedom, even with its limits, to have a similar stance. Let's pray to him now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, this reminder. We recognise the great freedom we have as Christians to be involved in society, culture, the world beyond us. Lord, forgive us for when we have just been uh, ever critical or withdrawn from our culture. Uh, We recognise that our freedom has its limits uh, and we do need to take that on board. But we ask that you might also give us a love for our world and for the people within it, that we might enter into it uh, with positivity that some might be saved. So put these things on our heart, we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.